Well, good morning, church. You know, it's, it's hard to know exactly what to do uh, when you're new to something. I, I will always remember a, a specific time when I was learning how to help pass out communion. And this was long before the days of COVID-19 and physical distancing and all of that stuff. And, and I hadn't really done it very often. In fact, I had had a lot more practice leading communion prayers than I had in the logistics of making sure everybody was able to receive communion. And so my dad had encouraged me, son, that's always something people need. And so that needs to be something you feel comfortable doing. But I was given the center aisle this particular day. And that means, you know, in a smaller room than this, it was a smaller church than this, I was having to watch all of the trays as they came towards me from the outer edge of the room. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. And so I was bound and determined not to make a single mistake. So I'm watching all these trays. And and by the way, you probably haven't noticed this if you've never passed out communion before, but people don't all take communion at the same rate when you're doing that. So it's not like you can just look and see, oh, it starts here and it's going to get here. No, you have to constantly, my head was on a swivel. Like I was getting dizzy from watching these trays. And I was doing okay because, you know, you're not just watching them. You have to make sure you give them to the right row because you don't want to accidentally give them to a row that's already had it. And people are understanding, but, you know, when they, when they get to the, the middle aisle and they're holding the tray out as far as they can so you can see that you're not doing your job right, it starts getting really it just rattles you. And I was making it, we were, we were a little past halfway through, and I start to hand the, the tray to this one gentleman, and I, I didn't recognize him. Uh, and he doesn't take the tray from me. He just goes into his pockets and grabs all of the cash he's got, and he throws the cash on top of the bread. And we both just froze. Because I knew he wasn't supposed to do that, and he thought he was supposed to do it till he realized there was food underneath the, the cash that he had just thrown there. And so I, I said, hey, you need to, th- th- there's going to be another, and, 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 you know, and while I'm doing this, the other trays are getting closer to the aisle, and I'm freaking out, and I'm trying to get him to get this idea that there's going to be a time in the service to, to get, I, you know, you can't blame. It's the first time at church. He assumed if we're passing a tray, that was when he was supposed to put some money in it. It's going to happen later. They're going to be baskets. They're not going to be trays. And he keeps shaking his head no at me. And I keep, while I'm talking to him, I'm trying to put the money back in his hands. And he just keeps pushing it back. And his kid, he has two kids with him. They're laughing at us like it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. And he keeps saying, it's, it's important that I do this. It's important that I do this. And I, I finally just said, look, you got to do it later but you're not supposed to yell at people while they're taking communion. And so he takes it from me, you know, offended, and he, he doesn't end up taking the, the bread at all. His kids try to help us, you know, along the way with that. Finally, you know, we take the, the cup. He doesn't throw money on the little, you know, grape juice cups, which I was relieved at. And then I finally have the basket, and I think, okay, we're, we're, it's going to be okay. So I, I get there. I hand the basket to him. And he taps both of his kids on the shoulder, and he, he's staring at them while he dumps all of his money in the, in the basket. And he says, see, I was right. Again, louder than he realized. And then it wasn't just his kids that were laughing. It was kind of everybody around us uh, that were having a good time at our expense. I never volunteered to pass communion again. Never. Because it's, it's, 
It was unsettling for him. It was unsettling for me. And it had to do with the fact that it's always difficult to know exactly what to do when you're new to something, right? You don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to take the wrong kind of step. You don't want to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so if, if you're anything like almost every single person who's ever lived, when you find yourself in that uncomfortable space of being new to something and then having some self-doubt, well, we all tend to retreat to what we do know, right? We, we get back to situations that we are familiar with. We, we find a way to experience the comfort of, of those surroundings that maybe we've lived our entire life experiencing. But here's the challenge for people who are trying to follow in the way of Christ. He is constantly calling us away from our old way of life into a new way of life. He is calling us from this broken world that we're really familiar with. He's calling us to believe that there's a new world that's breaking into this old one. Which means if we take Jesus at his word and we take him seriously, we find ourselves consistently unsettled. Because every step we take closer to the way of Christ is a step we take out of that old way of life. We move from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And we can be nervous, so nervous in fact that we start to retreat. You know, there's a part of me, when I, I listen to Jesus as he talks about that new life or that new world, there's a part of me that just wants to, to run back to what I know. I want to run back to that place where I've got some sense of control. But Jesus keeps calling us to a place where we don't have control. We yield our control to God and trust and hope and faith. You know, there's this part of me that keeps trying to figure out if there is this, it's impossible, but I want to find a way to step into the new life Jesus wants for me while never leaving my old life. But you can't do that, right? It is impossible. But I think we keep trying to find a way to live both in that old life and that new life at the same time and we're pulled into completely different directions and we get to the place where we're spiritually stuck. We're, we're paralyzed. Jesus keeps calling, keeps inviting us to trust, to believe that it's not really about us being masters of something we're just learning how to do. It's, it's not a, about us knowing exactly uh, how to perform all of these new tasks that he's saying he believes that we can be a part of. No, it's just, it begins with trust to take that one step and then enough trust to take another step and another step until we look back one day and realize just how much distance there is between who we are now and who we used to be. The life we have now and the life we used to live. For the last couple of months, we as a church have been listening to the Gospel of John as John tries his best to help describe really clearly to us what that new life that Jesus wants for us, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it means to really experience it. And, and John knows it's not so much about how we think. It's about who we are. It's about all of life. And so he doesn't really just appeal to our, our sense of logic, even though we might want him to just stay in that lane and be talking about ideas. He doesn't just appeal to our sense of logic. He invites us to imagine something, to see something, to picture something, to believe that, that the things that we see Jesus do in his life and his ministry that it's something that could happen to us. 
that, that it's not just about other people that Jesus loves this way or, or an invitation that Jesus gives to these other people, but it's a calling for us as well. So instead of this, this kind of list, maybe a bullet list of ideas about God that we're supposed, supposed to believe are true, John shows us images. John gives us snapshots. And, and even if we, we struggle at times to really see this series of snapshots clearly, he keeps calling us back to a place of imagining that it's not just historically true, but it can be true for us. And if, if we're not seeing it, well, then he calls us to try to see it again. Right? The, the first snapshot that John shows us. It takes place in in John chapter 2. It's the image of a wedding reception, right? Love is in the air. There are smiles and and laughter breaking out everywhere we turn. The anticipation that people have in that community for the new life that this couple is going to share together, it's an anticipation that's so real and strong you can actually feel it. This sense of warmth and light And goodness and joy is filled to overflowing without end. This eternal life that Jesus wants us to experience now, John says, it feels something like that. And then he goes on to another snapshot in John chapter 3. This time it's an image of new birth. And you know, every time I watch a couple who love each other encounter the birth of their child, it, it always strikes me as the miracle that it is. Right? To, to watch the transformation, the change that, that takes place in that future father and mother-to-be, the, the dreams that grow inside of all the people who are journeying alongside of them, people who care about them and, and want to believe the best for them in having this new life, this new start. But one of the most amazing things, and, and you've seen it before, right, is that moment when they get to hold their baby for the very first time. Something takes place, and it's not just that baby who's brand new. They're brand new, right? And it's true for everyone who gets a chance to hold that new life, that that newness somehow becomes something that everybody encounters and gets to share in together. John says, you know, this this eternal life that Jesus wants you to experience now, well, it, it feels something like that. And Then we go to the next snapshot that John wants us to see. And, and it takes place in John chapter 4. It's, it's more difficult, I think. It's a more complex picture because instead of us seeing joy or warmth or light or new life, new birth, we see somebody who's struggling, somebody who's having difficulty. She, she's drawing water from a well and, and she's physically weary and thirsty. That's why she's there. But John wants us to look long enough to realize she's not just physically thirsty, she's spiritually dying of thirst. What she needs more than anything else is, is not just normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill physical water. She needs living water. She needs access to this spiritual water that's going to allow her to experience True, true forgiveness and real grace. And as we look at her face, we realize, we, we recognize it. Because it's not just 
an expression or, or a way of moving through the world that belongs to her. But we've encountered that same spiritual thirst in countless women and men who we've come across. People who long for a certain kind of water, a certain kind of healing, a kind of of wholeness that they're not even sure exists, that it's possible, but it is possible. And we, we recognize that in other people, brothers and sisters, because all of us at one time or another in our lives, we've experienced that same soul-deep thirst. And yet we've found the truth in Jesus that there really is such a thing as living water, that he brings it into our lives, that he drenches our lives with that living water. It's a water that has the power to not only cleanse us, but to change us as well. And John says, you know, that that eternal life that Jesus wants us to experience now, it feels something like that. And then he goes to this next image, right? It's it's the picture of a family meal. It's it's a table. There's so much food on the table that that it's too much to take in, right? It's a feast that's fit for a king. But it's not a meal that's really about the food. It's about the people who are gathered together because of the meal. It's it's not about the menu. It's about the fellowship. It's about this opportunity that this community has to gather around a table to share life together, to to talk about their favorite memories, to make brand new memories. It's it's a, a moment where we get to experience the bread of heaven here on the earth. It's a meal that's more about our souls being fed, our souls being nourished, than it is about our bodies. John says, you know, this eternal life that that Jesus wants us to experience now, it, it feels something like that. And then we go to John chapter 9. Just last week we went together to John chapter 9, and we've got this image of a man who, who Jesus has approached, and he's He's spreading clay over his ruined eyes. He's never been able to see anything in his entire life. But he runs into Christ and in just a handful of moments, suddenly his eyes are open and he can see everything clearly. He can see everything as it is. He can see the clouds, the the trees. He sees the homes that, that are filled with people whose voices he's only heard before. He gets to see the face of his father, the face of his mother for the very first time. Everything, crystal clear, everything bright, everything beautiful, everything visible. And John says to us, you know that eternal life that Jesus wants us to experience now, it feels something like that. And now this morning we come to another picture, another image, another snapshot. And I am convinced that it is the most engaging, the most life-changing image that John knows how to show us in terms of Jesus and what he can do for people who are hurting, what Jesus can do for people who have nowhere else to turn. And we're going to look at that picture together as a church. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. Now, we're going to cover a story that takes place between John 11, 1 through 44. We are not going to read all 44 verses. But we're going to read enough to get a good sense of what's happening. Okay, so let's begin together in John 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. 
So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet and said the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. The dead man, who was no longer dead, came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now this, this picture, this image, this snapshot, it really is to me. It's crucial, right? It's key. It's core for us to look at, look at long enough so that we can imagine what's really going on here and what John is trying to say to us about this eternal life that Jesus wants you and I to get to start experiencing right now. Right? What is it that we're supposed to see? Now, one of the things that I think is a bit challenging with this story is the fact that it is 44 verses long, and so it's brimming. Right? It's filled to overflowing with all kinds of things going on that draw our attention. There's all kinds of little details that take place, and there's interactions, and there's conversations, and there's all kinds of characters. And, and you just, your mind can start to be overwhelmed with all the information you're trying to take in. But John doesn't want us, I'm convinced of this when it comes to the, the Gospel of John. John isn't one of those people who, who wants us to be locked up, our, our brains locked up because we're analyzing everything. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to encounter it. He wants us to experience it. He doesn't want us to be able to explain it. He doesn't want us to be able to define it. He wants us to be a part of our own life. Okay, so if we follow all these questions we've got, and, and trust me, I've got that kind of mind that starts to try to label things and define things and explain things. And so I start to ask questions like, why in the world does Jesus wait multiple days when he hears that somebody he loves and cares about is sick? 
I mean, I know he ends up saying that he's going to wait so that he can show the glory of God. But in an era before modern medicine, wouldn't it have been enough for him to show up right before Lazarus lost his life and miraculously heal him? Wouldn't that have shown the glory of God to people? Wouldn't that have been enough? Why, why does he wait for, for so many days that when he gets there, it says that, that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days? You know, why does he wait till Lazarus completely succumbs to this illness? I mean, didn't he think about what that was going to do to Mary and Martha beforehand? Why does it seem like he just starts to pick up on that when he encounters them? And when he does encounter them, they both say the same thing. And there's a part of me that thinks, well, how does he take their complaint? And it's not really a complaint, right? It's an accusation. If you'd been here, Lazarus would still be here. And it's hard to argue with them. They have really good theology there, but they're beyond theology. That's, that's not something that they're, they're really trying to express here. Their hearts are broken and they're angry because they feel like Jesus, the Son of God, has allowed their brother to suffer and die, and he didn't lift a finger to help when he could have. They're angry. They're hurt. They're frustrated. We've all been there before. And I think, okay, how did Jesus... How did he receive that? How does, how does he feel when he looks at these two sisters and he realizes what they've gone through? Was he frustrated at their lack of faith and trust? Was he, was he confused about what all they were, were thinking and feeling because he really didn't relate? What, was, he, was he dealing with a sense of guilt over what he'd put them through? And then why does he cry? I mean, what's going on there? I mean, when I was younger, I, I loved John 11.35 because it was the shortest verse of the Bible. And you could say at least you had one memory verse, you know. That, But why does he weep? What's he crying about? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has the power to do anything he wants to do. Is, is he crying because his heart's breaking when he has to encounter just how broken Mary and Martha are? Is, is he crying because he's about to call Lazarus back from a better place? Is he crying because he's standing in front of this tomb with a stone and he's the one who's going to have to say, roll the stone away, and he's already anticipating the suffering and the sorrow he's going to experience in his own death? What's going on? And where is Lazarus for four days? And don't say the tomb. Right? Where is he? And, and what's he experiencing there? And, and did he want to be called back? I mean, not, there's all kinds of questions. Right? And it's easy for us to get caught up in trying to figure all of that out. And I, trust me, this week I've spent all kinds of time reading books and commentaries, chasing all of these different thoughts and all of these different questions I had. And I've come to the conclusion that this morning is not really the time or the place for me to try to answer all of those questions that I have, partly because it wouldn't just take one Sunday. It would take several Sundays. And, and I'm not going to do that to you. And more than that, I think the difficulty is, in most of those cases, what I'd be offering you is basically a set of educated guesses. And I'm not going to do that to you. What I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, it's really easy when we're studying Scripture and there's a lot going on in the story, to get lost in the details of what this story might mean to us. And then we get so focused on what the story might mean to us, we fail to experience what the story means for us. 
What this story could mean to us could be any number of things. What this story means for us is one thing. It's one thing, and it's this. There's always hope. There's always hope. It's never too late for God. It's never too late. Even if something as dark as death has taken away someone we love, there is always hope. That is what this story means for us. Her name is Lori. Uh, She was born into a home uh, that was filled with pain and, and difficulty and turmoil. By the time Lori came along, her mother had already lost a husband to a war and a child in a tragic accident. And the only way that Lori's mother could figure out how to make it through one more day was to try to drink away her sorrows. Lori was born with a severe case of fetal alcohol syndrome, which was caused directly because her mother couldn't stop drinking throughout the entire pregnancy, which means that Lori was born with severe, severe impact, negative impact on the way she could think and the way she could reason and the way she could anticipate outcomes. And, and so she struggled to make good decisions from the very beginning. And even more than just that, that challenging start to life, she was born into a household that was undeniably broken. And so not only did she have these, these mental limitations that she was wrestling with, but she also was emotionally shattered by the experience she had growing up in that home. Nobody in her family knew how to be there for her. Nobody in her family really knew how to help her. By the time Lori was 30 years old, she had five children, all from different, different fathers. And she was, every single day, breaking the law, committing crimes that would help her be able to pay for more drugs and more alcohol because she didn't know how else to keep going. And I will never forget the first time I saw Lori and her children together. My dad and I showed up at this apartment that was, was run down and it was smaller than my bedroom at home. There was Lori with her children huddled behind her with fear in their eyes because they didn't know why we were there. They didn't know what we wanted. And all we wanted to do was to help them because Lori is my dad's sister. She's my aunt. And so we, we tried, and, and, and it wasn't just once. It was over and over again. My, my dad and his brothers, they tried to help get Lori back on her feet. They tried to help her, her children. And, and every time they tried, it seemed like it, it just wouldn't, it, it never it never really worked. And it got the, the darkest moment in her life was when the state of California stepped in and took her children away from her because she was a danger to them. And my dad did his best to find all of the homes that they were first in, in foster care and then eventually they were adopted. My parents adopted the youngest child and that's when Marcus transitioned from being just my cousin to being my brother. Time and again, 
my dad and, and his brothers, my uncles, tried to, to do what they could to give Lori a, a new start. They'd find her a new job. They'd find her a new place to live. They got her new clothes. They, they'd get her to the dentist so that she could get new teeth. And every time they tried to give her a new start, it didn't matter. Over time, Lori would figure out a way to waste it, to fall back into the darkness of drugs and alcohol. And I can't tell you how many times I watched my father receive phone calls growing up with with one of his brothers calling or a police officer calling or a social worker calling to tell him about some other bad thing that Lori had had either done or something horrible that had happened to her. And every single time I watched my dad handle those phone calls, his heart would break. And I, I got to the place where every time those phone calls happened, I was angry. I was angry for, for what it was doing to him. I was angry at Lori because even though I knew that so much of the difficulty and the sorrow in her life, it wasn't really her, her fault, right? It wasn't her, her choice. I also knew that so much of what she was going through, it was her choice. It was her fault. And I remember saying that to my dad after he got off one of those phone calls. And I said, Dad, I don't know why you don't just give up on her. It's her fault. And he looked at me and he said to me, that doesn't matter to me, son. When she hurts, I hurt. And I've got to find a way to help. I've got to find a way to help. I'll never forget a conversation we had years later. You're talking about faith. And my dad said to me, you know, son, one of the the key reasons that I believe in God is because I have to believe there's hope for Lori. I have to believe that, that with God, somehow, some way, it's not too late. That, that somehow, some way, with God, son, it's never too late. And I, I think about my Aunt Lori, and I think about the story of, of Lazarus. And you know, my dad is right. He's right. He's right about God. And because he's right about God, he's right about his sister. It's not too late. It's, it's never too late. Even when people we love are facing things, are going through things as, as dark as death, in ways that we cannot comprehend, in ways that we cannot explain, in ways that we cannot define, in ways that you and I don't ever get to control, it's never too late. There's hope for my, my Aunt Lori. And there's hope for people just like her. People who come into this world wounded, or even if they don't come into the world wounded, it doesn't take very long for this broken world to end up wounding them somehow anyway. And then because we're all wounded, we wound each other. And if there's hope for Lori, there's hope for you, and there's hope for me, and there's hope for our children, and there's hope for the people we love who we're afraid have completely lost themselves. Brothers and sisters, there's always, there's reason for hope. Jesus 
defeats death so that nothing in this life can defeat us. That's what John 11 is trying to get us to see. Right? Jesus defeats death so that nothing in this life can defeat us. It doesn't matter how messed up we think we are. It doesn't matter how many messes we've made. It doesn't matter what kind of weaknesses we have. It doesn't matter what kind of shortcomings we're struggling with. It doesn't matter how many choices we'd like to take back. It doesn't matter how mistaken we may happen to be. It doesn't matter how much we're able to understand everything we feel like we're supposed to understand. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. Jesus has taken the fault away. Jesus has, has taken the blame and the games that we play with game and shame and, and all of the rest of it that we think somehow if we call people on all their stuff that somehow they're going to wake up and suddenly be different. You know what makes people be different? The love of God. It's not some decision we make on our own. It's the love of God. It's the life that Jesus makes possible on the other side of what we would think could be certain death. Somehow, some way, God breaks through. Jesus defeats death so that nothing in this life can defeat us. I don't care if every step you think you're taking or every step someone you care about is taking, if you think every single one of those steps is somehow taking them farther away from the heart of God, let me tell you something. God is walking with them every step they think they're taking away from him. He's right beside them. He's right beside you. And brothers and sisters, I don't care how difficult or how dark the situation feels in your life in this moment or in someone else's life you, you love and you care about. There is always hope. And it is never, ever too late. So may we never look at a situation or a person we care about and say, if only Jesus had been here. Jesus is here. There is always hope. We're going to sing together now, and Dan, as, as he comes to the stage, I, I just, I pray that you live with a tangible sense of that hope in the week that is to come, and you find a way to encounter this love of Jesus that is stronger than any darkness you and I ever have to face. Let's stand together and sing.